0: Happy last weekend of 2012. You are here on a just momentous day in so many ways because we are at the end of the road. We have been on a year long reading and teaching series called Route 66, and today it comes to our final destination. And I'm just so excited to be here with you and get to talk to you about this great thing, this great place, this great reality called heaven. And that's where we're going today. So it's just a privilege to get to be with you. One thing that's going to help you today as you finish the journey with us is if you have a copy of the notes. So if you didn't get those on your way in, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some folks who'd love to get those to you. If you have your notes or you're getting them, go ahead and get them out. You'll notice that we were concerned for you. We thought that you might be in kind of an eggnog delirium after Christmas, so we went ahead and filled in all the blanks, okay? So as you look at those, you'll just kind of be like, oh, great, I won't even mess it up. Now, some of you are like such rabid note takers, like I have to get my fill-ins, just go ahead and write right above the line, it'll be great, it'll be your own penmanship, and it'll prove that you were listening, okay? So go ahead and make sure you do that. I think we were just anticipating that's how you were going to be today, kind of, you know, there, so... We're glad you're here. How many of you made it to our Christmas Eve services at HCC? Wasn't that great? Oh, my word. I just love it. I love the service for so many reasons. Probably the biggest is just the idea that it's High Desert Church as we're spread out over all of our campuses at Apple Valley and Phelan and uh, here our communities here at, um, at Victorville, to bring us all together. You notice the three uh, different worship leaders up front and um, the leads kind of doing some fun video stuff. It's just a great kind of church um, opportunity for us to be together. And so we're just so glad you were here. want to remind you, many of you, Use those services very strategically, thinking about people in your oikos that might never come to church but uh, at Christmas and Easter, and you invited them. I want to encourage you to continue to pray for them. They were here. Uh, God's word was scattered into their heart, throwing the seed as Pastor Tom and Tim were sharing devotionally and the music and everything about it. So continue to see how God wants to use that is just a great entry point into their life, So we're excited for that and excited to uh, kind of move now into this new year. This is a weird week. Uh, usually even in my calendar, I am off this weekend. And kind of after Christmas, there's just all these different things that tend to make us kind of melancholy. The the paper's been shredded and left to the side. Two or three of the toys you brought your kids are already broken, you know. And you're just kind of like post-Christmas letdown. Even the reality of us saying goodbye to Stephen Mary is huge today and it's heavy on our hearts. And so the melancholiness is understandable. For some of us, even where at times we just look so forward to Christmas, your Christmas has been tragic in numerous ways. And so I know that the hearts are just kind of all over the spectrum that are here today. And let me tell you this, you are here with purpose. You are here today in this auditorium for a reason. And I know one of those is that today's message and today's topic is the cure for any melancholy you might be going through. We're talking about the great hope and the reality of heaven today. This is the end of the destination. It is worth the journey for what God is preparing for us. And so I'm excited to get to go there with you. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation chapter 19. That's where we're going to be. Everything in our lives has a beginning and an end. Let me give you a few examples, even the idea of my own life. This is the beginning of my marriage. Joanna and I were married 20 years ago, this month in December, and this is just a snapshot from there. You'll see a very younger looking Todd originally, and uh, I've I've aged a tad. Um, But I tell you that simply to give a shameless plug for the fact that I've continued to convince my wife to stay with me, and I'm so glad for that. Now, I said everything has a beginning and an end. We don't have an end yet, okay, so we're still in mid-course somewhere, but a beginning at that wedding date and will continue, uh, God willing, just to continue to walk together in this life. Other things have a beginning and an ending, like Route 66. This is the sign in Chicago where Route 66 begins. The next picture is a picture of the intersection where kind of this route is kind of namely understood to have its origin. 2,000 some odd miles later in Santa Monica is the end of Route 66. And this is the view there, a little bit better than downtown Chicago, in my humble opinion. And and we think about even the Bible has a beginning in the book of Genesis in a garden, but it finishes in the book of Revelation around the throne of God. And that's where we're going today. We're talking about beginnings and endings. We're talking about destinations. And what I want to tell you from the very outset today is that this is a destination worth working toward, worth living for, worth continuing for. It's beyond what I could ever explain as being great. A few weeks ago in Romans 8, we talked about the idea that we groan as we wait for our adoption as sons and daughters. This is what we're groaning toward. And so today we're going to get to pull back a few layers and see a little bit more clearly what this destination is about and what we can be looking forward to. In order to get there, though, we're going to pass a couple things first. We're going to pass a military convoy and we're going to pass a checkpoint. So let me show you those and then we'll talk about the destination. In your notes, number one, Jesus returns as conquering king. Jesus returns in Revelation 19 as conquering king. The book of Revelation is a, a, just a wild read. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're someone who does not know the Lord and you're just kind of picking up the Bible and just want to read it and you go to Revelation, it's a trip. If you're a Christian and you have the Spirit of God even illuminate Scripture and, and you're, you're one of God's uh, kids, you're still reading Revelation like, huh? You, you might have a seminary degree, a PhD in theology, and you're still reading Revelation like, I, I just don't get it. There's just so many images and vivid things happening. Let me give you a couple touch points that we can at least kind of objectively start from today. Revelation 1 tells us that the Apostle John, John, who was one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the human author of the Gospel of John, has been exiled to an island called Patmos. Take a look. This is a picture of that place on a study tour with Pastor Kurt three and a half years ago. We got to go there, and this is at a monastery at the top of the hill looking down. John was sent to Patmos because of his faith in Christ and his testimony for Jesus. Rather than kill him, they just put him on an island about 30 miles off the coast of southwest Turkey today and just had him kind of just be away from everything else. The Bible says that Jesus himself came to John one day while he was on this island and that is the stuff of the book of Revelation. He wrote down both what he was told and what he saw and today we're the benefactors of that as we get to look at these words from what he said. He's going to walk through these various revelations mostly about the judgments upon the earth as you've been reading maybe with us this last week and reading Revelation, you've read that. But today what I want to focus on first Is the second coming, the the once again return of Jesus to the world. And you're going to see that he comes nothing like he came the first time. Revelation 19 verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There hasn't been a time that I have read Revelation 19, 11 to 16 and haven't gotten chills. This is the return of the king. This is how he is coming back to earth. And, and just the, the words as I just begin to describe it, just I can't even put my, my mind's eye around the picture of what will be descending through the sky to come back and take his rightful place upon the earth. I don't know about you, but I love epic movies, right? The whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, the new Hobbit that's come out, um, the the Narnia series. I love these epic kind of landscaping, good versus evil types of films. This is the best film that you could have ever imagined is Jesus coming back victorious. I don't have time to break down all six of these verses, but here's a few high points. He's identified here, Jesus is, as with other biblical names and titles that you've heard before. He's called Faithful and True, the Word of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. There's even a name it says that is on him that he has not even yet disclosed, still to be announced, that he bears upon him. And I, and I tried to even imagine, what is John seeing when he's trying to record this vision? And, and I just don't think, I even thought, well, maybe I'll do a, like an artist's rendering of, of Revelation 19. But everything I found online was just so pathetic compared to the reality of what's being described. Mark Driscoll, a pastor in Seattle, describes this as the MMA Jesus. He is coming to bring a whooping. And he is strong. And he is victorious, and he is conqueror. Jesus leads an army in Revelation 19. The army's described as well. They come on white horses. Interestingly enough, though, maybe you heard as I read, you'll notice how they're dressed. They're not camouflaged. They're not in some sort of outfit that's trying to keep them from being picked off by the enemy. They come in white, bold, for everyone to see, And I I loved, I was reading a commentator on this passage. I loved what he said. They come bold in white. You'd never go into battle wearing white, even for the fear of just how dirty you might become. They're not afraid of anything because it's gonna be the sword of their king that's gonna do the fighting. They're just along for the ride. Oh, I love that. I love that they're in battle in follow the king and he is going to do what he came to do. The battle of whom, though, is really important in this passage. Who does Jesus come to wage war against? The text tells us it's not Satan, which we might initially think. It's actually against the beast, one that Satan has appointed to come and deceive the nations. But it's not the beast alone. It's the beast as well as those who have followed him, those people who have taken up allegiance to the beast rather than the rightful king, Jesus Now, for some of you, that's distressing, that Jesus would wage war against human beings. But I want to tell you that it's not humanity that Jesus comes to conquer, because Jesus came initially to redeem and to rescue humanity. At his first advent, which we just celebrated this last week, Jesus came because he loved people. What Jesus comes to judge is people's sin and their rebellion and their resistance to not repent. Man, as you've been reading Revelation this week, there have been numerous times in the text where you'll see this phrase, and even then, the nations did not repent. And even after this judgment or this wrath, the people would not repent. I have written in my Bible a long time ago, just this phrase, what will it take? When you see God Almighty Laying out his wrath against you, what will it take? How rebellious is your heart that even then you won't bend the knee? But that is the record of scripture. That is how people continue to respond to Christ. And let me tell you this. Let me just solve this once for all. You want justice. You want a heaven that is filled and occupied and ruled by a God of justice. The the attribute, the quality of justice emanates from God. It's defined by him. And you would want a, a heaven with nothing less. You see, it's funny. When we are the people who are offended, when someone has done something against us, we demand justice. Yet when we're the people who offend others, we cry mercy. God is coming to once and for all bring justice to the earth. And that is what you want. He will write the sins that have happened vertically towards God and the sins that have happened horizontally towards each other. You live in a world, even in these last few weeks, that has just been devastated in our country with tragedy. Elementary school shot up. Firefighters arriving on Christmas Eve morning, gunned down, doing their job. And you go, what is the point? What is the sense Jesus is coming to bring justice for those, just like he is in the other parts of your world. What I want you to see, what I want you to marvel at, is the contrast of how Jesus comes differently than how he just came. What we celebrated at Christmas and at the Advent, look at the contrast between how he comes back in Revelation 19. First, Jesus came in human frailty, then he'll come in sovereign strength. First he came in obscurity, now he'll come in prominence. First he came in humility, then he'll come in glory. First he came as carpenter, then he'll come as conqueror. First he came on a rescue mission, then he'll come in victorious military campaign. This is your God. In your notes, this is the Messiah that we've been reading about all throughout Scripture this past year. And he is there waiting at the end of the road. I love that. I loved this Christmas season, driving around with my family and looking at Christmas lights. And I would love to see nativity scenes out in the front yards of some folks. But I got to tell you, when I've come to understand Revelation 19, every time that I see a nativity scene, I can't help but think of that rider on that white horse. He came this way, but he's coming back that way. That is Jesus. And I'm just completely amped about that. Number two in your notes, after we pass and we realize that Jesus is conquering king, your destination will be determined by a book. There's a checkpoint along the way. Your destination is determined by a book. Look over into the next chapter of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens. They fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 moves us past where Jesus was exacting justice broadly in chapter 19 to now where God the Father is judging individually. Satan is thrown into hell, into the lake of fire in between that portion we read of 19 and 20 and then before a great white throne, all of humanity is judged. Notice the criteria by which they're judged. You saw that phrase, according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Not according to what they had said, not according to what they had believed, not according to platitudes that they were to recite. It's just like life that we know it. How you live is what matters. Not what you say you believe, but where the rubber meets the road. That will be the stuff of judgment. And when you read those words, you're cut to the quick because you realize that before a holy God, the book of your life is opened and you stand before him and you begin to realize that everything, every sin, every fault, every crime stands before him, able to tolerate none of it, not even one piece in his holy presence. You are in the wrong place. And I got to tell you, if that's how the story ended, if that's the way the Bible came to a culmination, we started in Genesis, we saw this great creation and this order that God put together now marred by sin. And if that's all that's going to happen is that sin is going to continue to destroy all the way to the very end that there is this courtroom scene with a holy God behind the desk and you, the defendant, standing before him. The book is opened and you are wanting, you are guilty. There's nothing you can do before the judge to change the way it is. If that's how the story ends, take the word tragedy and just stamp it on the Bible. Because that's what it is. Even better than Shakespeare ever came up with. It's a tragic play. But the great news is, there is a very short little sentence that I read in the midst of that paragraph. There's another book. Oh, how great is that? There's another book. The books are open, they're evaluating, and they're based on how you've lived, but there is another book. And what's interesting is in that book is not a list of things done, it's simply names. Names of people who have cried out to Jesus and said, Jesus, I know. I know my life. I know what is against me in this court, as it were. Would you take my place at the cross and write my name in your book? That changes the whole story of everything. There's now hope for the hopeless. There's mercy for the convict. Not because of something we could drum up on our own. When you're standing before the judge, there's no way to sweet talk your way into anything. You're just simply guilty. But the great news is, is that he has another book and he opens it. And when your name is there, simply because of what Jesus has done in your place, it changes everything. I want you to process real quick. This is what we talk about every weekend. This is the ABCs. A is admit, admit that you are a part of the human race born a sinner who behaves like a sinner and that when your book is opened, it records the reality of a life lived apart from God. Be believe, believe that what Jesus did though when he came into this world that we celebrate at Christmas, when he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose supernaturally on the third day, believe that he created the opportunity for there to be another book. But C is really that that final step. It's not enough just to know you're a sinner. It's not even enough to know there's another book that exists. See, Jesus, please write my name in your book. That is the gospel. It's what we talk about every week, and it's the gospel from the beginning, and now as we read today, it's the gospel at the end. Aren't you completely thrilled that there's another book? God, thank you. Thank you so much. There's no hope without it. The Bible tells us in verse 15, what happens? What happens with the reality of people whose names are not found in that book? Verse 15, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Now you read that and you process and you go, okay, now wait a second. Mentally, I can read the page, the words on the page, But as I begin to process, those other people are not just a sea of faceless names. Those are the people who live in my world. They live next door to me. They work in the cubicle next to me. They sit at the desk behind me. They might even live under my own roof. People whose names are not written in that book, now that's a problem. And that presents a great conflict in your spirit. I want to help you with that a little bit today. Number one, I first want to tell you I'm glad. I'm glad that it breaks your heart that there are people in your oikos, in your relational world, your 8 to 15, who don't know Christ and you are deeply concerned about it. Anything less would be a heartless Christianity that simply says, well, I'm good. Praise God, I know where my name's written at. Sorry for the rest of you. You're not that way. And I love that about High Desert Church. That is what fuels our mission. In your notes, the certainty of hell keeps motivating you to pray and to share and to live Jesus in front of the people in your world because you know how badly they need to know him, how much they need their name written in Jesus's book like yours has been. But don't for a minute, don't for a minute believe that anyone will be unjustly or somehow even unwillingly sent to hell apart from his or her own choice. In your notes, look at the profound words of C.S. Lewis. He put it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So what do you do? What do you do with this reality about the other book? Number one, first make sure your name is there. First, make sure your name is there in terms of your response to Jesus. Remember what I said. It's not because you need to show up to church more. It's not because you need to read your Bible more. It's not because you need to somehow give more that that will somehow ice your name in his book. It is simply a call out to the one and only Savior who can rescue you. And that is why your name is there for nothing else. We do those other things. We live lives of obedience because we realize, God, everything about me, I want to please you. But our name is there because we simply have cried out, God, have mercy on me. I have no hope but Jesus. Some of you are here, and and you actually came to our Christmas Eve services, and and it was awesome. And you thought, well, does your Church, I've never been, and it was a great time, and I, I wonder what they're about. And you're here today. You're here today. Maybe your second time only with us. Can can I just tell you something? Can I just pull back for a second and help you see the forest for the trees? You've come on the very last day of an entire year-long reading and preaching series. And you came at a time when we were going to share so incredibly crystal clear the great news of Jesus Christ and what he's come to do for you. There is no coincidence with that. There is no way that you just stumbled into this auditorium today. You are here for purpose and for reason. And you know it. And your very next step is simply that. Jesus, I need you. Would you write your name, my name, in your book? Make sure your name is there. Number two, continue to live. Continue to live as a world changer in your oikos. Because God wants to strategically and use you among the people that he has placed you among. Man, I love it. We, we're here and we do baptism services and you just hear consistently what, what's your story and people's story is always about. It was my, my relative, it was my coworker, it was my neighbor, it was my friend who first shared Jesus, and the, the great news of his love with me. And you hear these stories and can I just tell you, I want you I want you to be able to sit there and someone from your Oikos stands up here and says, It's because of how God used them in my life. That is what you're on the planet for. That is your purpose, is to be a world changer. And can I tell you the reality that that is true with this tension? You can't save anyone. It's always an act of God working in their lives, but you can be instrumental. A few weeks ago in our series in the Gospels, we talked about the parable of the sower and the seed. I just love that image. That is what God has called you to be, is to be the one who's throwing seed in people's lives, inviting them to Christmas Eve services, inviting them to church, inviting them into your home and just demonstrating how God has changed your life. Keep throwing seed because the time is short and eternity is very long. And that brings us to our third point today, this reality of heaven. Heaven is great because God is there. Heaven is great because God is there. Once you've encountered the conquering king, your name has been found in his book, his other book. You arrive at the end of the road only to start a journey that will never end. It's amazing. Our lives are are this, James even calls it a vapor, a mist. It's here and it's gone, but the reality is, That when we wake up into eternity, it only just begins. Listen to the way it's described, this this idea of being around the throne of God in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. This is what this whole year has been headed toward. As we began the journey back in Genesis, this is what the stuff of scripture is leading us toward. It's called home. I will be their God, they will be my children. A reunion of the family that God initially had started us toward. What was lost in the garden will be reclaimed and even better around the throne of God. In your notes, Jesus came once to provide the how at the cross, and this passage confirms the when. Jesus came to provide the how at the cross, but this passage confirms the when. When will it be realized? When will our adoption fully take place? And I don't know, I don't know how you can read these words about the throne of God and be anything less than amped. Just so excited about this reality of heaven and being around the throne of God forever. But I got to tell you, as I say that, I actually can understand, if maybe not. I've told you before, I'm a lifer. I've grown up in a church environment since I can remember. And I remember a season in my life, probably, you know, teenage years, where I kind of thought, man, this whole heaven thing, I've heard about it since I was a kid, streets paved gold, the whole business, sounds great. But, God, I've got this list, you know, of things I'd like to do first, places I'd like to go, things I'd like to experience before, you know, I, I go there forever with you. Because there's even some parts of heaven that just kind of like, really? Diddling? You know, I'm just kind of like... I'm not sure how woo I am even about that. It sounds awesome for a half hour, but I'm not sure about eternity. And I had these reservations about heaven and you may too, and you may even have still today a list. God, heaven sounds awesome, but God, these things first. You know, I'd really like to experience this or, or do that. Can I just say this in the nicest possible way? The fact that we would have any kind of list at all simply indicates that we just don't understand the God that we're talking about. That's all. It just means that if there's anything on earth that you would say God first, then you've simply misunderstood the God that He's presented Himself in Scripture to be. Because you have to understand when I stop and process, at this point in my life, everything is about that. Because I know that the reason why heaven is going to be great, it won't be based on what I get to do. The reason why heaven will be great, it won't even be who I'm reunited with. The reason simply and alone that heaven will be great is because God will be there. The God who's transformed my life, The God who has rescued me, the God who continues to give me stacks of rocks indicating his faithfulness and how he meets needs in this world, how much more around the throne face to face. In your notes, for those who want to see him face to face, the reality of simply the fact that God is there will be enough. Man, Paul, as he writes to the churches, as he writes to Timothy and Titus, He's reminding them, heaven is so worth it. The hope that we have is worth putting one foot in front of the next. Peter, when he writes his epistles, he writes to the church who was suffering, you're going through difficult times and persecution, it will be so worth it. The author of Hebrews, the, the church is being scattered and, and difficultly oppressed as well. And he says to them, This old way of life of doing things under the Levitical law, it is so worth it to the heaven that God has promised those who put their faith in Christ. Again and again and again in the New Testament, it is worth it. Why? Because Jesus is there, and he will make it all worthwhile. Man, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you as 2012 comes to a close. None of us, none of us have a crystal ball to know what 13 and beyond holds. But what we can know is this the God who gave us his word, who pulled back and revealed to us the ending, we get to know how it ends. We get to know that Jesus comes back as conquering king. We get to know that we will be right with God because of the other book. And we get to know that heaven is so absolutely the place we've wanted to be, the place we've grown for. Let me encourage you, keep putting one foot in front of the next, following Jesus, just like Paul said, because it's worth it. And God's going to bring it all together and it will be this theme that we saw all the way back in Deuteronomy will ultimately come together forever. I will be their God and they will be my people. Let's pray. Father, we take a moment just to pause, just to thank you. How, how great that you have pulled back the veil and let us see the end. And God, between this conquering warrior, king, Jesus, who comes back, between the reality, the hope that we now can have because of the other book that he has made, the immensity and the just grandeur and majesty of being around your throne, Forever, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around how truly great that will be. For all these things, not only that they are real, but the fact that you've even told us about them, we say thank you today. Would you fire us up? Would you give us momentum and energy to keep on keeping on? You're here today. We said a few moments ago, you're not here by coincidence or random. You're here today because you needed to hear this great news of Jesus. The fact that he came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, raised supernaturally, all for you. All that you might have the opportunity to have your name written in his book. Today, before you even get out of your chair, your eternal destiny can change by calling out to him and saying, Jesus, I need you. I believe that you are the son of God sent to save me. I bring my life to your cross. Please write my name in your book. I want to live your life. And Father, that is how we all come today. We come surrendered to you. Surrendered as we look forward to a new year and what you would have for us and surrender to the idea that you are a great God worth living for. We love you and we pray all because of Jesus today. Amen.